Hey everyone, uh, Dan Grote here. So uh, what you're about to hear is an episode from the WMQ&A Vault. Uh, back in early July 2020, Matt and I recorded uh, an animated discussion episode uh, all about Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Uh, and we did that as uh, a backup in case uh, one of our guests uh, had to back out or drop out at the last minute. We'd have this extra episode in the bank so that we wouldn't have to scramble or anything. Uh, and uh, Matt finally took, uh, took a little vacation uh, last week. Uh, his brother got married. Uh, congratulations, Michael, by the way. Um, so we're finally letting this episode see the light of day. So this is an hour and change of me and Matt uh, talking about uh, you know one of the preeminent pieces of Batman media. It very much sounds like something we recorded in July of 2020. I apologize now for the uh, very awkward tinny uh, defund the police uh, comment that I make later. Uh, not the defund the police part, but everything else around it that sounds like a, a white boy liberal trying his best. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, you'll, you'll just... There's timestamps all over this uh, this motherfucker, um, <laughs> like like when we don't know when uh, Tom King's Batman Catwoman series is coming out. <laughs> Obviously, it has. But uh, anyway, enough of me rambling. Uh, that 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 should be enough setup for you to know what you're about to listen to. Please enjoy. Welcome to WMQ&A's Animated Discussions. I'm Dan Grote, and if you're listening to this, our guest bailed on us at the last minute. And I'm Matt Lazowitz, and this week, I finally got Dan to sit down and watch the best Batman movie of all time, the 1993 animated feature Batman Mask of the Phantasm. So what did you think? Pretty damn good. Very damn good. In fact, uh, but before we jump all the way down this rabbit hole, uh, we should probably practice custom. Uh, and so I ask you, Matthew, what's this movie that I just watched about? <laughs> Short or long, mon ami. Let's keep that summary petite. Merci beaucoup. In the most superb hour and 15 minutes of animation ever, Batman confronts a new villain and his past. <sighs> All right, now drag it out for me. Okay, uh, a warning on this one. This movie is currently streaming on Netflix, if this is coming out anytime soon to when we recorded it, uh, so you would definitely be better off watching it before you go any further, because the ending involves a twist that we can't help but spoil, and even though it's a 27-year-old movie, uh, spoiler warning is in effect. It's worth seeing before we discuss, but in case you want to hear our dulcet tones describe it instead, here we go. 
Batman Mask of the Phantasm was released on Christmas Day, 1993, with a story by Alan Burnett, a screenplay by Burnett, Paul Dini, Martin Pascoe, and Michael Reeves, and directed by... Eric Radomski. Uh-oh. Okay. I'm missing the first name there. I will go back and read that again. Yes. Yeah, I might have missed that when I was typing it. Mea culpa. Okay. <clears throat> Batman Mask of the Phantasm was released on Christmas Day, 1993, with a story by Alan Burnett, a screenplay by Burnett, Paul Dini, Martin Pascoe, and Michael Reeves, and directed by Eric Radomski and Bruce Tim. After a pan through a CG Gotham City with faux Latin lyrics sung over the Batman theme, we enter on mobster Chucky Saul, preparing to distribute counterfeit cash through his casino as Batman busts in. Batman takes out Chucky's mob, but Chucky escapes with the fake cash. Chucky runs to his car, only to be intercepted by a figure he initially assumes is the Bat. It is, in fact, the titular Phantasm, uh, a new character in a Grim Reaper-esque costume who declares, Chucky Saul, your angel of death awaits. Chucky attempts to flee in his car and run down Phantasm, but the new villain causes him to drive off the top of the parking garage, and Chucky dies in the process. Batman appears and witnesses only see the Dark Knight. City Councilman Arthur Reeves speaks to the press, decrying Batman for having crossed the line and killing Chucky. Commissioner Gordon stands up for Batman, but Reeves continues to play to the press. In the Batcave, Bruce inspects a shard of windshield from Chucky's car, noting the residue of the phantasm gas, and Alfred snarks at him delightfully. On a plane into Gotham, a mysterious woman talks to Arthur Reeves as she looks at a magazine with Bruce Wayne on the cover. Bruce holds a party at Wayne Manor, where he runs into Reeves, who makes a snotty, passive-aggressive comment about the woman who got away, Andrea Beaumont. Bruce walks away and looks at the painting of his parents and enters a flashback. The flashback shows his first meeting with Andrea at the cemetery where his parents are buried and her mother is. The banter back and forth uh, is in the style of the best 1940s screwball comedies. We next see Bruce's first night out as vigilante in Gotham, which does not go well he does stop the crooks but without any real element of surprise or intimidation he takes a beating along the way the next morning bruce practices jujitsu and talks to alfred about the plan before andrea arrives they banter wind up sparring and then kissing back in the present mobster buzz bronski goes to pay his respects to chucky Saul, only to be met by the phantasm at the graveyard Buzz tries to fight the Phantasm, but is chased into an open grave, and a large stone angel is dropped on him. His goons only see Phantasm from a distance, and so they assume the cloak figure is Batman. The next morning, a third mobster, Sal Valestra, sees a newspaper article about the death of Buzz and has a panic attack. Reeves confronts Gordon in Gordon's office, demanding the commissioner go after Batman for the murders, but Gordon refuses, saying he knows Batman didn't do it. Reeves starts to work with Harvey Bullock and other cops who are anti-Batman to try to take down the Bat, but have no luck. Batman goes to the cemetery to investigate and stops by his parents' grave, only to hear talking. It is Andrea at her mother's grave, and she sees him, goes to the grave that he was standing near, and seems to put two and two together, deducing Batman's identity. Batman spies on Andrea having dinner with Reeves, who talks about how close she is with her father as we enter the next flashback. Bruce and Andrea go to the Gotham World Fair, taking a tram through the World of Tomorrow exhibit. Shit, I'm going to have to, that's the world of the future. Uh, Starting again, Bruce and Andrea go to Gotham World Fair, taking a tram through the World of the Future exhibit. 
They are now clearly very much in love. They discuss the future, and Bruce agrees to go meet Andrea's father. While she calls her father on the car phone, Bruce talks to Alfred, unsure what to do, because he must be going nuts since none of this is part of the plan. But Alfred gently chides him that this is the sanest he's ever been. At Carl Beaumont's office, we see Andrea's father and one of his legal clerks, a young Arthur Reeves. Beaumont talks to Bruce about the importance of family as Salvalestra arrives, very clearly arriving to talk business. We also get the first look at Valestra's driver, Bodyguard, uh, a long-nosed gunsel. As Bruce and Andrea leave, they come across a motorcycle gang trying to rob a street vendor. Bruce intervenes and again winds up taking a beating. Uh, Andrea wants to tend to him, but he storms off. As a storm rages, Bruce is now home talking to Alfred about what he should do. He again walks away, this time going to his parents' grave, asking for them to let him out of his vow. Andrea arrives, and the two embrace. Back in the present, Sal Valestra grabs Arthur Reeves off the street, demanding to know details about what Reeves knows about Batman attacking their people. His driver is conspicuously a different guy now. Batman figures out the connection between Sal, Saul, Bronski, and goes to investigate Valestra's house, finding a picture of the three... Ah, fuck. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to have to redo that. Because Sal and Saul sound too much alike. They do. <laughs> I need to make that uh, uh, Chucky. <clears throat> that, I stumbled over that because I, I, going for all last. Uh, yeah, okay. Whew. Once more with feeling. <laughs> Back in the present, Sal Valestra grabs Arthur Reeves off the street. Demands, demand, ah, fuck. <laughs> Back in the present, Sal Valestra grabs Arthur Reeves off the street demanding to know details about what Reeves has learned about Batman attacking their people. His driver is conspicuously a different guy now. Batman figures out the connection between Chucky, Bronski, and Valestra, and goes to investigate Valestra's home, finding a picture of the three mobsters, Valestra's bodyguard, and Carl Beaumont. Seeing Carl again sends Bruce into a flashback. Bruce and Andrea walk the Wayne Manor grounds, and she talks about going on a European trip with her father. Bruce asks her to stay, and awkwardly proposes. Andrea accepts, and bats begin to pour out of a hole in the ground. Uh, Bruce drops Andrea off at her house, where they see the silhouettes of the mobsters talking to her dad through a window, with Felestra's bodymen smoking outside. The next day, Bruce comes up from the cave uh, the bats escape from to find Alfred with the engagement ring from Andrea and a Dear John letter. We cut to some time in the future in the Batcave, as Bruce first dons his costume, frightening even Alfred. Back in the now, Sal Valestra drives into the ruins of the old Gotham's World Fair, where some of the still-functional exhibits are shot to pieces by the Joker. Joker and Sal clearly have some history, and Joker takes Sal into his hideout, the House of the Future. Sal is there to pay Joker to take out Batman before he takes out Sal. Joker agrees... Well, sort of. It's Joker, after all. At Andrea's hotel, she says goodnight to Reeves, who is a creep. And she kisses him only after she sees Batman waiting in the room. He begins interrogating her about Carl, showing her the picture he took from Valestra's house. And she says she doesn't know where he is. They trade sharp comments, but when he leaves, she begins to cry. The Phantasm arrives at Sal Valestra's mansion and finds him sitting reading a newspaper. When Phantasm pulls the paper away, though, Sal is dead, his face contorted in the rictus of Joker venom. 
a small camera attached to the body reveals Joker is watching, and he sets off a bomb, which Phantasm escapes by jumping out the window. The Batwing flies above, and Batman and Phantasm begin a chase across the rooftops. Batman abandons the plane, and the two fight, and Phantasm disappears as a GCPD helicopter begins to chase Batman. Batman is chased by the police through the city, and winds up escaping after taking some pretty serious hits. Wounded, he's nearly caught, but Andrea's timely arrival in a car allows him to escape. Back at Wayne Manor, Alfred patches Bruce up, and then Andrea tells Bruce what really happened the night he proposed. Carl had embezzled money from the mobsters, and they wanted it back, or they would kill him. And if they couldn't get him, they'd kill her to make a point. So they fled Gotham. Beaumont eventually paid them back, but they wanted him dead for running. Bruce deduces that Phantasm is Carl Beaumont. Andrea does not argue, and they kiss again as the camera pans to the window, and then fades to sunrise. Bruce tells Andrea he will stop her father, and she says her father doesn't matter anymore. Andrea leaves, and Bruce and Alfred talk about what this means for Batman. Bruce takes another look at the photo, and this time it dawns on him. He takes a red pencil and draws a smile on the face of Valestra's bodyguard. It's the Joker! We now see Joker at Reeves' office, where Joker confronts the councilman, thinking he might be Phantasm, but when Andrea calls, Joker puts something together. That night at Gotham Hospital, Reeves is suffering from the non-lethal, but possibly even more horrible effects of Joker venom, laughing uncontrollably and maniacally. Batman appears and asks Reeves what Joker wanted from him. Reeves then reveals he sold Beaumont out to the mobsters for money for his first election campaign. Bruce goes to Andrea's hotel and finds a locket with a picture of the two of them as young lovers in it. He picks up a ringing phone to hear Joker on the other end. Joker sending a bomb via model plane from the World's Fair to blow up Andrea, and Batman is able to use a battering to blow it up before it enters the hotel room. At the fairgrounds, we see Andrea in the Phantasm costume and see the final flashback. Her arriving home to her father's European hideout to find the young Joker leaving. She rushes in and screams as she finds something horrible the viewer doesn't see. In the house of the future, Phantasm arrives, finding the Joker waiting. They fight, and Joker runs off into the fairgrounds. He tries to suck Andrea into a jet turbine, and nearly succeeds before Batman's timely intervention saves her. Batman and Andrea argue about the merits of vengeance, and he leaves her to go hunt the Joker. They fight among a model Gotham City like giant monsters, and Joker uses the booby trap model to his advantage before throwing a switch that will destroy the fairgrounds in five minutes. Batman continues to chase Joker, who's trying to escape via a jetpack. Batman jumps onto Joker, and the pack won't support both of them, so it crashes, and Phantasm reappears. Joker surrenders, but Phantasm is too consumed by vengeance. She holds on to Joker as the explosion begins to tear up the fairgrounds. Joker laughs madly as Phantasm's smoke covers them, and the explosion drops Batman into the sewers. Back at the Batcave, Alfred comforts Batman, telling him Andrea was gone, swallowed by darkness, long before now, and that he is grateful every day that Bruce has never gone down that path. But Bruce catches a glint out of the corner of his eye and runs across the cave to find the comedian's button, <clears throat> Andrea's locket. On a ship, we find Andrea standing at the railing, looking out the sea, alone. And in Gotham, Batman stands on a roof, sees the bat signal, and goes back to work. Yeah, that was one of the longer, long versions we've done, because 
for an hour and 15 minute movie, this thing is plotted real dense. It is. Pardon the uh, SMR uh, break. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, you just saw this for the first time. Yes, this afternoon. This very afternoon. <laughs> I have seen this thing more times than I could count. Uh, my DVD is actually signed by uh, Kevin Conroy, the man himself. Um, as you might imagine, I really wanted to see this movie on the day it came out, Christmas Day, 1993. Mm-hmm. And I, I had planned and my parents had agreed that you know they that we'd all go to the movies and they might see something else with my brothers because they didn't care. Uh, and then Christmas Day, 1993, I woke up with 101 degree fever. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I was down. So that day, instead of seeing the movie, I spent the entire day in bed listening to Broadway musicals on my new CD player, the, my first ever CD player, and reading the movie adaptation of Batman Mask of the Phantasm because, damn it, I needed to know what happened. But, but that was also a Christmas present. The CD player, some CDs, and the adaptation of Batman Mask of the Phantasm. That is a very, like, Matt Lazowitz 1993 scenario that you just painted for me <laughs> it, it, it really is it is very much very very me um yeah so i have to say as someone who's seen pretty much all of the now direct to dvd dc animated movies this is what those movies should be it's good. smart yeah <laughs> there's that too um but it's smart and it's mature and it doesn't sort of fall back on the what so many comics view as maturity, which is, you know, cussing and blood. It's more there are com- there are a couple sex jokes. Yeah. And there's Bruce. Bruce makes, uh, you know, he's he says hell at one point or another. There are a few uh, Sal Valestra makes some comment about you know, they'll crucify me. And it's like, you, you weren't getting away with that with standards and practices on the networks. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely PG rated. And these DC animated movies now, they're always shooting for this R rating. It's like, this really shows you can do a complex, strong animated feature without needing to do the R rated thing. Mm-hmm. Learn from your history, people. <laughs> Um. Yeah, so we've got kind of almost a, a linear kind of series of notes here. Uh, you know, it, it, let, let's start with the opening because it's clearly trying to show you something. It's clearly trying to show you, hey, we we got a theatrical budget for this. This isn't, you know, this isn't four o'clock on 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 a Wednesday on Fox that you're looking at here. And so what you get is this very early CG sort of sweep through Gotham City uh, very much looks like, you know, people kind of just starting to play around with computer animation, but not in a way where it's, I mean, you notice it, you definitely notice it, but it's, it, it's not like it's an altogether different Gotham City from what you see in the regular animated series. If anything, it takes those beautifully painted you know neo-noir backgrounds and just adds more movement to them and a a little bit more oomph and and like you mentioned there's this like 
and 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 bear in mind this is 1993 so gregorian chanting is hot right now <laughs> so they put that latin chanting over over the the your standard danny elfman batman the animated series uh opening score um yeah it, it's 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 a nice touch but also and because we just did that Final Fantasy VII uh, episode just just a couple months ago, there was still a point, you know, a part of me that was like Sephiroth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the uh, Shirley Walker, I believe, said somewhere I read when doing research that that's that is faux Latin. That is the <laughs> names of people involved in production uh, spelled backwards, and ones that could you know actually be pronounced were chanted because it just gave that impression without actually meaning anything which is kind of fun <laughs> okay the, interesting I mean, the animation itself the the n- traditional animation is also really turned up to 11 on this there are some absolutely gorgeous shots some stuff that you know Batman the Animated Series did a ton with its limited budget for you know uh as you said, four o'clock on a Wednesdays. But for this, there are, you know, the, the fight, the various set pieces, the big fights are incredible. And there's a couple of moments uh, when Bruce is fighting the biker gang and you see him jump and land on the front of a bike and then punch the guy in his face. There's, it's, it's so anime inspired. There's, there's speed lines and everything. <laughs> and you wouldn't have necessarily been able to pull that off and the exploding world's fair at the end is really cool those were good explosions <laughs> yes and one of the big things that you see with animated uh, tv series is that the reason characters usually wear the same clothes over and over again is because once you've got the model for that character in those clothes that's they wear because otherwise you have to design new models uh the model for young bruce is very much a slightly different model versus the animated series where you get flashbacks to young bruce and it's pretty much the same bruce wayne they really shave weight and they shave lines and they change his hair slightly so he looks markedly younger they're also putting him in like yachting fashion so he's rocking like pink pastel sweaters and stuff like that i love the nebulous timeline that is batman the animated series the the you don't exactly know when this takes place because all tvs are in black and white but there's crazy super science like the long string polymer smoke bombs that the phantasm uses and car phones that exist i would assume long before car phones were really a big thing rotary car phones at that andrea is dialing a rotary car phone in one scene it's an absolute joy i mean it's what batman the animated series always did the the (laughs) the when of it was always so ambiguous and it makes for a timeless experience most of this doesn't look dated most of this movie 
could be produced today and it would still look like something you could see. Mm-hmm. Something about that Bruce Tim animation. I was thinking about this, and this is a little bit farther down in my notes, but it has that. There is a very specific atmosphere. There's something about that, like mid 1990s Warner Brothers animation. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's not. I'm not yeah. just talking about Batman the Animated Series. I'm talking about Animaniacs. I'm talking about Pinky and the Brain. I'm talking about Freakazoid, which. I don't understand why more people aren't talking about Freakazoid uh, yeah, all the right. time. Uh, you know, t- Tiny Toon Adventures, uh, Superman. I mean, a lot of these things were animated by Bruce Timm. But not only that, but the 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 humor, even in the more serious shows, and just the atmosphere. Uh, you know, these things were all were all linked, and and not just by a, a, an animate. You know, a studio, if that makes oh. sense. Absolutely. I just finished reading voice actor Rob Paulson's autobiography today, and it ends with him talking about the recordings for the new Hulu uh, Animaniacs that should be coming out, I would assume, later this year. It was supposed to be 2020, but, you know, COVID, who knows? (laughs) Um, But it's... He said one of the things he's excited about is people seeing the original Animaniacs, which are streaming on Hulu, and the new ones back-to-back because the four main voice actors mm-hmm. are back. It's him and Jess Harnell, who was – was, Rob Paulson was Yakko, Dr. Scratch and Sniff, and Pinky. Mm-hmm. Uh Jess Harnell was Wacko, Tress McNeil was Dot, and Maurice LaMarche was the Brain. And all four of them are back for the new incarnation. That's exciting. Oh, yeah. And, and Narf! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, moving on. This, a lot of this movie is an adaptation of Batman Year One. And, you know, just the idea that we're looking at a younger Bruce who is not the the competence porn machine that we're all used to uh, with adult Batman. Um, this this is definitely the best adaptation of Year One, I, while not being at like a straight adaptation that I've ever seen. Like hand, hands down, like this is better than Batman Begins. Yeah, one hundred percent. Absolutely, I absolutely agree. The DC animated feature adaptation of Batman Year One is—it's good. It's enjoyable. It's uh, Brian Cranston as Jim Gordon and uh, what's his face from Gotham who played Jim Gordon. Um, right, uh, Ben McKenzie. Ben McKenzie as Bruce Wayne. It's not bad, but it is one of those slavishly faithful adaptations yeah mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it goes beat for beat for the from the comic to the movie and thus doesn't do anything new with the format and this movie takes its liberties with the format to provide something that works best in animation that that opening fight where it's you know Bruce jumping these guys who are robbing a warehouse is is a great sequence and, and I like that we do see young uniformed Harvey Bullock in yeah. a police car 
it, it's a great little moment. And I mean, yes, year one did, you know, Bruce out on the streets and getting, you know, fighting pimps, mm-hmm. which is so very Frank Miller and so very <laughs> mid 80s. Uh, this this works just as well, if not better, and fits the the milieu m- more. Yeah, definitely. You know, and you could just see all those all those goons that he's fighting in most of the flashbacks. It's like these are all these guys are all going to go on to be like you know generic hench people for the Penguin and the Joker and the Riddler and all those guys. <laughs> they're all yes. named Ro- they're all named Rocco. Every single one of them is named Rocco. <laughs> yes, they are. They are definitely Rocco's and you know Buddy and Tiny. Yep. <laughs> I was about to say Rhino, but Rhino is a specific henchman, so they they won't all be named Rhino. Rhino is the ventriloquist's like right hand goon. Uh, I'm thinking of that line in Harley Quinn now. Like <laughs> uh, he's on loan to the, or the ventriloquist is getting out of Arkham, so he's off the market this week. <laughs> Watch Harley Quinn, folks. It's great. It's 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 very good. Um. The, the I, I will say that the Gotham World's Fair song is going to be stuck in my head for weeks. It is after every time I watch this movie. I love the Gotham World's Fair. I love that setting because, folks, this is just a blatant ripoff of spaceship the Spaceship Earthride at Epcot, and that's why I love it. Um, Epcot is my favorite area of Disney, uh, specifically because of its dated futurism. It's got this weird mix of, like, the future as determined by the 1950s and the 1980s. So it's like the Jetsons meets Captain EO. Uh, You know, when you first walk in, a lot of, like, the bus shelters and those initial buildings, it's all that architecture that was originally there from the 80s. And it's, like, gray with curves and everything. I, I don't know. It's just some of my favorite things to look at. Uh, so, you know, seeing that that one area uh, repped in this movie uh, spoke to me personally. And and also, yeah, why wouldn't the Joker hang out there and make uh, sex jokes at a robot <laughs> who slices his deli meats for him? Yes, that that is, oh, just so very Joker. This is easily some of the best Batman the Animated Series style Joker. Mm. We'll, we'll get to more of that in the end, but I, I love the Joker as he is in this movie. So I'm curious, did you know the twist going into the movie? Did you know the Phantasm's identity? I didn't, you know, I, I kind of, I'm sure that you told me at some point. Um, or I like osmosed it, but I wasn't sitting there the whole time going, Oh, it's Andrea. You know what I mean? Like for me watching it as a fresh set of eyes, there was a Playfair mystery for me, you know? And I was sitting there briefly thinking, Oh, it's Carl Beaumont out for revenge. But I was, but then I was also like, "Eh, that seems too clean. And the daughter's got martial arts training and there's the whole femme fatale side of it all yeah it's probably so when she pulls off the mask finally at the at the world's fair you know i'm I'm, i wasn't i wasn't surprised the clues were certainly all there i think at that point it's just a matter of yeah you know by now it it me (laughs) yeah 
I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I'm never sure because I've seen this movie so many times and I had read the movie adaptation and seen the action figure, which the, the <laughs> Phantasm action figure had a removable, you know, cowl and cape. And when in packaging, it didn't have the cowl and cape on. So if you were at Toys R Us and just walking through the action figure lane, it spoiled the big twist at the end of the movie. Motherfucker, I hate when movies do when when like uh, merchandising does that. I remember, okay, I remember looking at like the Lego play sets around the time Civil War came out, and they the Lego sets spoiled the fact that Paul Rudd was doing Giant Man in Civil so, yeah, War. That was not in the trailer. Yeah, the Funko Pop did too. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I, oh, it drives me crazy. But I've always found that, you know, I was never sure if Arthur Reeves was meant to be a red herring himself or if it's only Joker assumes it's him because he knows Carl Beaumont is dead. You could go a couple ways with it. I, I mean, honestly, I just saw him as a, a slime ball extraneous character but the fact that you know again we're talking you know talking about a playfair mystery type thing you know you're gonna get a few new characters and any one of them could be you know this the mysterious uh phantasm you know scooby-doo monster of the week <laughs> but you can also rule things out as you go and i don't know i i, I didn't there really wasn't a part of me that thought this little weasel guy was going to be it yeah no he he was to me he never struck me as a valid suspect uh, i will say of all of the you know period costumes and such flashback sal valestra in his all black suit mm -hmm. he was styling <laughs> he, he, he looked real good and i like the fact that he basically chain smokes through the entire flashbacks and in the present has to walk around with an oxygen bottle because he's clearly has terrible emphysema. Which is another sort of old timey thing, the old person on the oxygen tank. But there is something about the, the aged, like 90 something year old gangster, like still, still, still holding on to that or that beautiful organized crime. <laughs> oh yeah. No, he's, he is a great character, and part of that has to do with the voice acting. And we will get to that when we get to the voice acting segment, because he, oh, the the voice cast for him is just, just oh so good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is oh so good. Um, I, this movie. The reason why this is my favorite Batman movie is partially because it's a Batman movie. The villain never overtakes Batman as the focus of the film, mm. which is often the case in the better Batman films. So you don't feel like even like the you don't feel like the Joker steals focus once he comes the, into the picture. The Joker, he steals the scenes he's in, but it never becomes Joker's movie. Okay, okay. If you're watching The Dark Knight, as good as Christian Bale's performance in that movie is, guess what? That is Heath Ledger's flick. 
Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. The original, you know, Burton Batman eighty nine. Nicholson. I mean, Nicholson is top build, and there's a reason for that. I mean, partially because he's you know Jack Nicholson, and partially because it. I'm pretty sure he has more screen time than Michael Keaton. And between Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer, they have more screen time than Michael Keaton does in Batman Returns. Hmm. Batman Begins is Batman's movie, as is The Dark Knight Rises. And they're both good. I both I enjoy both of those movies quite a bit, but they aren't as good as they are nowhere near as good as Mask of the Phantasm. Mm-hmm. And Batman Forever and Batman Robin are all of the the Burton Shoemaker movies are the villains movies. The villains are these, you know, big, larger than life characters that Batman is sort of the story vehicle to allow those villains to have a story. This movie is about Batman. It's about Bruce and they get Bruce so right and it's painful at times in those flashbacks when he's in front of his parents grave in that with the rain coming down Mm -hmm. in one of those final flashbacks and he's just almost begging them to let him out of the vow that he made to them his line I didn't count on being happy it it hits you Mm -hmm. it gets you right in the gut because it's like this is this was Bruce's last chance and fate took it away and you know I mean yeah the world needed Batman but oof did it hurt for him to get there definitely also he's bad at proposing Yes, yes, Bruce is not. Yeah, no, he's he's not good at that. I mean, let's let's be honest. Bruce has always been bad at women. No, you know he's not he's not Spider Man who is you know you know what I mean like he's not a serial monogamist. Right. No, Bruce. This version of Bruce has Andrea is the one true love of animated series Batman she is what Selina is in the comics Mm -hmm. and he didn't get her and from there on it was just like yeah I'm gonna you know I'm gonna keep trying to make it work but it never really does that whole scene is also great and I mean the bats coming out of the bat cave that is very cool, but a notably unsubtle omen of things to come. Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely a thing that we've seen, you know, over and over again in Bat lore, too. You know, I, I, I almost, you know, like when the bats come out, I just want him to be like, I'm sorry, we can't do this. <laughs> I promised my father I'd become a bat. <laughs> I must go now. Yeah. You know, we mentioned it with uh, Sal Valestra before, but we also see young Joker smoking. I, I have to go back and watch Batman the Animated Series again, but I don't think people smoke in that. 
there's a lot of smoking. That's another one of those, hey, we don't have S&B breathing down our necks anymore. So let, let's, you know, get away with everything. Yeah, I, you know, and here's the thing. Okay, so when I first saw, you know, Flashback Joker, I didn't think it was him. Like, that bell just didn't ring with me. I'm like, oh, who's this creepy guy hitting on uh, Andrea at uh, the Valestra the estate, wherever he was at the time? And then, obviously, you know, it, Batman gets his red cra- magic red crayon out and draws on a photo. But... <laughs> you know, it's not... Uh, as as you said, it, that is a... I will not argue that is a Batman competence porn moment. Mm-hmm. The way it's shot is very cool. The, the the look that he gets when he sees it and the, the his like response like oh no as he figures it out is really good but the yeah I'm suddenly gonna put two and two together on this is very much world's greatest detective Batman yeah or or just like a, a thing you put in a Silver Age comic because it's like well he's got to figure it out uh, he's just gonna have like a premonition. Or something. I, I feel like I know this guy. Oh, it's the Joker. Because it's always the Joker. Yeah. Let's be fair. Okay, you know what? I'm, I'm going to take this moment, actually, to ask the big question. Uh, would this movie work without the Joker? Because he doesn't come in, really, until about halfway through. And, you know, I was very engaged for the first half of the movie. You know, with Batman and this this woman who got away, who's clearly his equal in so many aspects, and you've got this mafia intrigue. Like, I feel like there's enough meat on those bones. Uh, you know, it's less so. Like you mentioned, Batman Begins. That's not a. You know, that's also a very mafia centric movie, and I. You know, I never really feel. You know, tempted to go back and 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 rewatch that one, but the, you know, I was. You know, thoroughly engaged. And, and don't get me wrong. God damn it, Mark Hamill is in God mode uh, as the Joker. You know, and I was very happy to see him when I saw him and to hear the Joker's theme song. Uh, you know, because it unlocks all sorts of sense memories. But still, I was like, you know, did he have to be here? Was this a marketing thing? Like, you couldn't make this movie unless the Joker was in it. Is that a rule? You know, and it's not like he brought the movie down. It's I don't know. It just it becomes a different movie once you insert that 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 whirling dervish of chaos into it. I don't think the movie needed the Joker. I know Alan Burnett initially wanted this to be more removed from the traditional rogues. Uh, I whether it was marketing or some other executive that you know, kind of said we need, you know, some the Joker in there. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But I sit back and I would have to figure where they would have needed to go with the the plot without having that extra antagonist at the end. Because, I mean, the mobsters are not a threat. And if somehow phantasm took out the first two right away and then Valestra was able to keep eluding the phantasm it would have made the phantasm less intimidating the -hmm. fact that you have joker there means that someone can keep 
challenging the Phantasm who isn't Batman, and you still think the Phantasm has edge. It the character this character wasn't popular enough at the time, so you wouldn't have used Deathstroke, but this would have been a place where you could have gotten away with a Deathstroke or a similar superpower or you know quote-unquote superpowered assassin in that role that Valestra hired as a bodyguard. Mm -hmm. Something like that to keep the momentum going. But I'm not 100% sure what you could have done to keep that momentum up without um, having Joker in there. But that's also because for me, I've seen this movie so many times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I would, I don't think you needed Joker. You just needed something to keep the story engine moving. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I see that because you you have to raise the stakes somehow by that point in the film. Otherwise, like if you had just stopped with the Phantasm taking out all three guys and then Batman confronting the Phantasm, you know, you've got a really good episode of the animated series. But right. in- introducing, yeah, okay, I see, okay. Yeah, you you would have gotten a two-parter. You could have gotten 44 minutes, but to get it up to uh, 75, you needed that third act, and that's what Joker provides. Mm-hmm. Of all of the rogues, tying Joker, in this case somewhat loosely, into Batman's origin... Kind, not you know as tied in as he is in the Burton films but giving him that little bit of something in his past that ties into Batman's feels more organic than if it was most other villains yeah and you said it but this is Joker at his at his absolute best and this is a Joker. This is the Joker that I miss. The Joker in the comics since Grant Morrison hasn't been funny. And yeah, I mean, there's always there's it's gallows humor because he's the friggin' Joker, but he gets some great lines in this. Don't. Touch me, old man! I don't know where you've been. <laughs> and there's other moments where the Joker is funny, but then he turns on a dime and is scary. And that's good Joker. That's that's how the Joker should be. The I mean, he can absolutely be an agent of chaos. I'm fine with Joker as sort of maniacal serial killer but he he needs to be unpredictable in a completely unpredictable way the joker of the past few years i mean definitely since uh keith ledger and the dark knight Mm -hmm. but even earlier from the point of the uh a clown at midnight and when Grant Morrison took the Joker he's not I mean he's unpredictable in that you never know what his plan is going to be but he's going to go and try to get as 
kill as many people as he can and is going to make some vaguely creepy homoerotic comments at Batman. Mm-hmm. That's what the Joker has been for much of the past 15 years. I mean, there are moments where he's not usually in other realities or uh, when he's been used in context with Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. But Endgame, uh, Death of the Family, uh, all of Morrison's uses of the Joker, he's not... He doesn't rob banks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something about the fact that the Joker could just one day wake up and be like, you know what I really want to do today? I want to go to the Gotham Museum and I want to steal all the left shoes in the fashion displays. Why, boss? Why not? I I like that weird, kooky unpredictability. I like the fact that, I mean, he does something terrible to Reeves, but he doesn't kill him. He doesn't need to kill everyone. I mean, he kills Sal, which is kind of great that the Joker animated joker actually gets to kill somebody but that's the point though he killed sal but then he he tortures uh reeves and and in a lot of ways that fate is much more chilling because that whole scene at the hospital where they need to constantly hold him down just because he's like cackling against his own will and they're just animating tears streaming out his face you know and it takes a, a mild sedative or it takes a sedative and being confronted by batman to even calm him down like a little bit and even then he's still like like kind of like chuckling oh yeah it's a it's a it is a fate worse than death but it's so many modern takes on joker he would have just killed him because that's what the joker does uh, I will give Scott Snyder credit in his uh, his story in the Joker 80th anniversary special. He does a whole thing about the people that the Joker leaves alive. That that is Joker's kind of shtick with those people is that he's giving them a fate worse than death. And that's sadistic and terrible, but it's not boring. And if the Joker is one thing, there's one thing the Joker should never be. It's boring. True. Uh, yeah, there's there's so much. I mean, the 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 stuff between Bruce and Andrea is great. I mean, the pathos that you get all of in all of that, and you know, you asked the question and found the answer that yes, indeed, she is named after the wonderful, the inimitable. Andrea Romano, the uh, the voice director for Batman the Animated Series, and and also you know a number of those sort of Bruce Timverse uh, DC projects, uh, and, yeah, and everything else. <laughs> I mean, her career. Look, and if you don't are if you are unfamiliar with Andrea Romano, look Andrea Romano up on IMDb, and if you are of our age or Damn, you're 40. <laughs> yeah, or 15 years younger than us, 
Andrea Romano voice cast your childhood. She only retired a few years ago. And uh, just her career is incredible. Uh, definitely. And if that's that's like a few, you know, voice casting is, is something that you're interested interested in, you should definitely watch. There's a documentary called I Know That Voice where, you know, it talks to her and, and a lot of the people that she's worked with over the years. It, I mean, it's not specifically about her. You know, it's more about, vo- you know, voice work and, and animation in general. But, uh, you know, you get a lot out of it. So as we continue along chronologically, <laughs> I, I could not wrap my brain around the GCPD SWAT uniforms. Yeah, let's talk about police fashion because <laughs> this this feature has some police fashion in it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you see plenty of GCPD officers over the course of the you know the series and in pretty traditional police blues, but the SWAT guys wear what looked like old school football uniforms with those leather helmets and honest to god jodhpurs for pants it's like wait i know batman the animated series loves to blend fashion from different eras but that is a choice those are those are two very yeah those are two very different looks and that wasn't even that was that was what you called out I had a different uh, noticeable police fashion trend. Uh, you know, when they're chasing him through the streets and they've, they're on the helicopter and everything, uh, they're wearing, like, gray official police cardigans over their uniforms. <laughs> Looked damn near cozy, uh, to be quite honest, but... You know, in in keeping with the times that we current live in, currently live in, you know, listen, I'm all for defunding the police if it means demilitarizing them, especially when that military hardware is used to oppress marginalized classes and protesters. But you know, let's let's give them cardigans. <laughs> let's keep them cozy. <laughs> let's let's Kevlar more cardigans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. Batman the Animated Series, you know, if we all went back to dressing like people did in Batman the Animated Series, that, that weird blend of the, the, the 40s, 50s, and today, uh, with today was 1993, uh, I would be <laughs> all for that. <laughs> High-waisted pants, flannel shirts, <laughs> Tommy guns, long trench coats, they all, they all just, they merge together in a beautiful salad. <laughs> Uh, no, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> there are a couple of really great directing beats towards the latter third of the movie. Some, some of those things that Batman the Animated Series would do, and that this movie would do that most other shows wouldn't have tried because of how subtle they are Mm -hmm. one is bruce and andrea after she saved him they do this kiss and it pulls out and you see outside wayne manor and then it i guess the opposite of fades to a sunrise but that kind of you know transition and then they're both there and she's out on his balcony and it's like, okay, yeah, they did it. 
they, they totally did it. But it's suggestive rather than explicit. Uh, like those Jim Steranko panels with Nick Fury and the Contessa that are often used to show, you know, Steranko as this genius because he'd gotten, you know, notes back that he couldn't make it as, you know, titillating as he wanted to. So he plays with what you don't see, which is also what they do in the final flashback when Andrea finds young Joker walking out of her house and she drops the groceries and runs in to find her father and you just hear her scream. It's that Hitchcockian, your imagination is worse than whatever you could see kind of thing. Both of those are really great examples of use of filmmaking. Uh, uh, absolutely. There was, there was a uh, beat that they did twice and I laughed both times where Alfred is bringing Bruce uh, and Andrea a tray of, of fresh squeezed lemonade and catches, catches them making out and just turns and <laughs> goes the other way <laughs> in this like almost fluid motion. Like that gif that you see from the Simpsons every once in a while of grandpa walking into the brothel, seeing Bart <laughs> at the uh, hostess stand, grabbing his hat and walking back out. <laughs> is your name Bart? <laughs> Yes. Does your father know you're working here? Yes. Oh, then <laughs> give me a gin and tonic. Oh, Grandpa. Oh, great episode. Oh, of a, of a show that is not the subject of this. Tangents yeah. are welcome. Oh, exactly. And a show that I believe Andrea Romano was involved in. So there we go. Brought it back around. It's all connected. <laughs> uh, so getting into some of the the final that final set piece that you know incredible fight uh, i like the joker just has no problem you know quote unquote hitting a girl this is like yeah fed has and he just starts you know shooting acid at her and punching her it's like yeah the, the joker is completely equal opportunity when it comes to his beating the hell out of people trying to kill him true i mean to be fair the phantasm did take out two mafia bosses uh, ahead of him so you know he did see her as as an equal if not a threat to him yes oh, oh no you doubt know, you, know, you know what i mean like let's not let's not laud the joker as a feminist <laughs> <laughs> no the joker is anything but a feminist the, yeah the, yeah see the, how he treats harley quinn <laughs> yeah i was gonna say batman the animated series proves that more than anything else but i, I just i like the fact they didn't call that out it would have been so easy to do a, you know, well, I'm not going to hit a girl sort of thing. And it's just like, it's, it was a nice moment to have the Joker just like start wailing on her in the same way he wails on Batman. Mm. And that Godzilla fight is, is great. Batman and Joker in the model Gotham city, one building of which has a WB logo on it. I noticed that. Yeah, no, that was, that was, that fight scene was a lot of fun. And it also reminded me there was an episode, uh, like I want to say it was season three of arrested development. Uh, it was in the middle of the Mr. F plotline where Tobias and George Michael, 
get into a fight. One of them is dressed up like a mole, and one of them is in like a jetpack, and they just bust up. Job had built this this tiny town, which he was using for for a presentation, a business presentation of some sort, and, and they get into a huge fight in it. Hey, jetpacks again? Jet, you can't escape jetpacks. Why don't we have jetpacks? That feels like a thing we should have by now. If they were talking about jetpacks like 50 years ago, you know what I mean? Like, like why are they only for like James Bond and the Rocketeer? And Cyclops. That, that, that remains Matt Fraction's best addition to any X-Men thing ever. The one issue where Cyclops goes to confront... Norman Osborn, and you know Matt Fraction does those little uh, text—they're not balloon, text boxes that always describe a character. Fractions, yes. Yes, and it's Scott Summers, Cyclops, leader of the X-Men, owner of a jetpack. <laughs> it, it is one of my favorite panels. Anytime I see anyone with a jetpack, that's what pops into my head. Joker, arch enemy to Batman, owner of a jetpack. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But just that whole final, and then that final moment is the it as the the fair burns around them, and Joker is just laughing, and Andrea uses her little gas trick, and the two of them just sort of are gone as Batman drops. It's like it's a, a it's a really stunning visual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's one of those things where it's like, well, this could go either way. Yeah. Depending on what we want to do with them next. Which, I mean, obviously, you see Andrea before the end of the movie, but... And Phantasm only appears... Has only appeared a few other times. There's uh, one, I think, Batman and Robin Adventures annual, a Batman Beyond Unlimited comic, and a cameo in the episode of Justice League Unlimited uh, epilogue. They've never done another animated Phantasm thing, and yes, it looks like Tom King is going to be bringing Phantasm into the Batman Catwoman series, but I... Hold, yeah. hold, hold, hold up, wait. That's still happening? Wasn't that teased like a year ago, or even like longer? You read my mind. I was about to say, but I'm not counting on that until I actually see that get that series in my hand what, wasn't because... that the series that was only announced because Bleeding Cool ruined it <laughs> yeah, they, they keep <laughs> saying it's coming and I'll believe it when I see it I'll believe it when I see it yeah Mm-mm-mm. so we are near the end of the movie yes. um, and so there is that, that moment at the end with the locket which is a it's a great little visual moment and it's a show don't tell moment. Bruce gets the locket and he doesn't have to go. She's alive, Alfred. Even if they hadn't done the bit in the boat, you would have gotten that impression. Mm -hmm. And it's again, a beautifully animated little bit that Jeff Johns stole in rebirth. (laughs) Like seriously, I see it. As soon as I see the glint on the wall in the back cave, I'm like, Oh shit. Is this about to go, uh, go doomsday clock like real fast <laughs> that is almost exactly what except, except if it instead of it being up in the wall it was down in like a pit in the cave 
uh, the, the the comedian button, but it was yeah. the exact same thing. How often do shiny objects appear in the Batcave that Bruce is like, oh, uh, what's this? I need to investigate. <laughs> well, at least twice. <laughs> uh, one final note before we move into Matt's voice acting corner. Um, the guy who sort of hits on Andrea on the boat mm-hmm. had a whole subplot in the movie adaptation. What? He was a guy in Gotham who had the obviously placeholder in the screenplay name Burton Ernie. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was very clearly a, you know, okay, we're going to give this guy a better name. And they dropped the subplot from the movie. And so they never gave him a real name. And so when the movie adaptation was being written off of that earlier version of the screenplay, they left the name in. But he was this guy who, I mean, it's been, you know, 27 years since I read this movie adaptation, but I always remember this. He had been there when uh, Chucky Saul died and he had taken a photo and the photo had the phantasm in it. So he winds up selling the photo to the press thus proving that batman wasn't the killer and made enough money that he decided to take this you know cruise as his reward and then meets andrea on the boat it just ties that little subplot into the main plot of the the movie but i guess the rest of it was cut but they still had this guy hit on andrea in on the boat which you don't need him to be anything else other than guy in a jughead crown you know flirting with Andrea. But still, that's a fun little fact for those of you who did not read the, you know, prose novel adaptation of Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah, he did have a jughead crown for no <laughs> reason. But I you know, I never minding even that, I do have an important follow up question. Does Burton Ernie annoy himself when he eats crackers in bed? <laughs> I can only imagine he does. Uh, he just he just keeps himself up every night with shenanigans. <laughs> yes, he does. And still loves his rubber ducky. Very much. Uh, so real quick, actually, before we hit the voice acting corner. Yeah. Uh, the couple of little character notes. Uh, Arthur Reeves is a character from the comics, but a minor one. You know, he was a Gotham politician who was a, you know, comic relief sort of gag when, you know, he's ranting at Gordon at one point about, you know, how he's going to, you know, he would, you know, he'd show Batman with his own two fists and Batman just appears behind him and goes, boo, and he runs away screaming. It's a it's a legendary uh, O'Neill Adams panel from uh, Half and Evil, the story that introduces, reintroduces Two-Face and... But they just kind of took the name. And I love Phantasm. I love the design for Phantasm. I like the fact that Phantasm is clearly visually inspired by the Reaper from Batman Year Two. And Andrea is herself part uh, Judson Caspian, the, the Reaper, his daughter, Rachel Caspian, and Silver St. Cloud, 
the legendary love interest from the Engelhart and Rogers uh, run as someone who deduces Bruce's identity in an equally specious way. Um, Andrea does it by looking at a gravestone. Silver does it by saying, how could I not recognize that chin? Um, <laughs> uh, but it's also important to point out, Phantasm is never called Phantasm in this movie. Yeah. They never say the word Phantasm at any point in this film. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's a really cool villain name, though. Uh, now, voice acting corner. Uh, we've said it before. We'll say it again. Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill, they are Batman and Joker. They are Batman and Joker, not just for you know our generation, but they have been doing these characters for 25 years plus. Damn near 30, yeah. Yeah. They, you know, whether it's Batman the Animated Series, the Arkham games, Killing Joke, any number of other places, these guys have defined these characters for two generations. Yeah, but that adaptation of the Killing Joke isn't good. No, it's not. But it's not, partially it's not good because the Killing Joke is way overrated. Come at me. Uh, I, I rarely give hot takes because that's not that is f- about as far from Matt's brand as you can get. Matt likes to talk about things he likes, which is why Matt doesn't talk about the Killing Joke. Um, but yeah, we, we will come back to these two voice actors and these roles in future animated discussions as well because mm-hmm. you you can't escape them. Um. Andrea is voiced by Dana Delaney. Lois Lane. Yes, she got Lois Lane after having done Mask of the Phantasm and is absolutely wonderful in both of those roles. And, and you know, it's it's perfect. You know, I could see how she got the Lois job because Andrea Beaumont is such a... You said this before, like she and Bruce have this like 1940s Rock Hudson, Doris Day, screwball rom-com uh you know back and forth and and lois lane obviously you know uh, tough as nails uh most powerful woman in the dc universe uh, you know again come at me uh you know what why wouldn't you transfer that voice to to that next role you know and and again that's 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 definitive dana delaney is lois lane absolutely no doubt yeah. No doubt in my mind. Um, Arthur Reeves is voiced by Hart Bachner, uh, who is a one of many character actors who do voices in this film. Um, in his case, it's interesting. He's the son of another actor, Lloyd Bachner, who was the voice of Gotham Mayor Hamilton Hill throughout Batman the Animated Series. So they both play only... I mean, Hamilton Hill is not as much of a sleazeball as Arthur Reeves, but he's still the mayor of Gotham City, so there's, you know, only so much you can, you know, get away with and still get that job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Another legend of acting, everybody knows, Stacey Keach is the voice of the Phantasm and Carl Beaumont, which they, you know, use to tie those two together. Uh, Even... You know, it, it's a it's a point to add to the red herringness of it. 
Uh, and then we have the three mobsters. Uh, first, Chucky Saul, who's voiced by Dick Miller. Um, Miller, if you are a fan of the DC Animated Universe, you'll recognize him for probably two other voices. Uh, one, he was Gotham mobster Boxy Bennett, the put-upon mobster that Harley Quinn repeatedly causes chaos for in the episodes Harlequinade and Harley's Holiday. And he is the voice of uh, Mr. Miracle's BFF and manager Oberon in Justice League Unlimited. A fun! Yes! Uh, Buzz Bronski is John P. Ryan, who is, uh, you know, a character's actor, character actor's character actor. I mean, again, look him up on IMDb and man did an episode of everything. And then there's Sal Valestra. Sal Valestra is voiced by one of the greatest mob actors of all time, Abe Effin Vagoda. Love it. Love yeah. it. You love to Mobster see it. And cop. He, he's played both in his time. Mm-hmm. And Valestra, he does a tremendous job as Valestra. He plays off of Mark Hamill so well in that scene. He holds his own with Mark Hamill. It is a great performance in a great movie. Yeah, and, and, and again, you know, Valestra, of the three mobsters, he's 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 got the most personality. You know, he's clearly the most imposing, even though he's the oldest. He, you know, he gives off major, like, Silvermane vibes. The You know, the Spider-Man uh, mafia, excuse me, Magia uh, <laughs> Don. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's, like, a Superior Foes of Batman uh, series where... Let's say, I don't know, Killer Moth, um, one of the less popular clay faces, uh, the, man. the Mad Hatter who's horny for hats, who I just learned about a couple <laughs> uh, episodes ago in our Mr. Freeze episode with Dan McMahon. Um, yeah, Kite Man. Heck yeah. Yeah, he's the boomerang of this operation. Yes. And let's see. I need I need one more. Give me one more. Tweedle, Tweedle D, who's having a fight with Tweedledum. Uh, yes. Yeah, Perfect. and they're all fighting over the the disembodied robot head of Salvalestra. Uh, and, and you've got great white shark in the hammerhead role. Yep. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yes, I, I would I would read that book. Uh, so we're we're wrapping up, uh, but I want to call out one other thing. Uh, if you are interested in Mask of the Phantasm, or the Batman stuff that is slightly off the beaten path, uh, you should read Paul Dini's uh, original graphic novel, Dark Knight, A True Batman Story, with art by Eduardo Rizzo. Uh, Right before this movie went into script treatment, uh, Dini was mugged and fairly brutally beaten. And this is the story of you know, that whole experience and the after effects that it had on Paul Dini's life. It's really, really good and is well worth tracking down. That sounds awesome. Do we need to touch on anything else or? I I don't think so. I think we are good. All right. Then we're clear. Yes. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, 
meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at comicsxf.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, that one time Pete Wisdom stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. WMQA.